All right, listeners, it's Ryan and Megan, and welcome to the Mental Health Mixtape, a podcast dedicated to fostering open conversations, sharing stories, and exploring a diverse range of topics related to mental health. So hold on to your seats as we sit down with some amazing guests to get their perspectives on the ever-changing landscape of mental health. And for all you old folks, no need to hit the record and pause button. Just sit back and let us navigate life's playlist together. During this podcast, you may hear stories about traumatic events and our guests' experiences. There may be discussions about suicide, traumatic events, and the outcomes from these events on personal lives. If you're struggling with anything you hear, please reach out to your peer support team, psychologist, call 911, or head to the nearest hospital. In Canada, you could call Boots on the Ground Peer Support for First Responders at 1-833-677-2668. Talk Suicide Canada at 1-833-456-4566. And in the United States, call 988 for the National Crisis and Suicide Lifeline. It should be noted that the information shared on this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical, psychological advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Wow. Thanks for coming, Franklin. Thank you. So, uh, welcome. I, I don't know what we do now. I mean, realistically, it's a podcast. So let's let's start the chat and I think we'll just go from there. Okay. We have so many things we could talk about, but Franklin, you know, I I would inter- introduce you in probably a number of ways, but given that all the hats you wear, you probably should introduce yourself would be my hunch. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I guess I fancy myself a military philosopher, um, I, a military historian. Uh, I'm a, a veteran of the Iraq war, and for the better part of a couple decades, I've worn a military uniform. Although with that being said, anything I say here is my personal opinion, not the official opinion of any type of agency out there. Thank you. Thank you. Franklin, how how did we meet? Why don't you tell that story? Like, how do we come to be here? This, this group <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, well, so I met you going back to the agency that I'm not mentioning. Uh, so I was trying to consolidate kind of a more interest in the use of stoicism to address behavioral health uh, inside the military. And I have lots of reasons for that. And kind of the one major reason why I'd really love to see more use of stoicism is um, we have become hyper-specialized in our society. So um, to the point where we've lost kind of the larger picture of our own profession. So uh, it's something that uh, Alexis de Tocqueville warned about, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago, that now when the army looks at kind of like a resiliency program, we kind of have a box. So it's like you attend this program, it's certain time length, and then you attend it once a quarter. And then we might go over and we might get a lecture on kind of just war theories or the laws of war. And uh, we might get another lecture about the history of the military. Um, but if you studied philosophy long enough, you, you'll come to the realization that Stoic philosophy kind of co-evolved and was shaped by the military. And that's been um, brought forward, especially through modern times in a, a philosophy called Neo-Stoicism developed kind of the end of the 16th century, early 17th century. Um, but out of that movement came combined arms um, techniques that we still use on the battlefield today, very much still engaged in combined arms. But the Stoic philosophy that um, kind of previous generations of military soldiers would have been introduced to would have connected kind of the resiliency aspect to 
understanding the laws of the war because they were all connected and interconnected. We'd understand our history and why we do things and why we go out and engage in kind of extreme physical fitness um, kind of training. And it's not, well, it's very important to be as physically fit as you can to kind of prepare for combat, but it's also that mental aspect of just getting used to being uncomfortable, which is the stoic toughening type training. And I think that we have subdivided things and how we kind of study, whether it's going through school or how we address our professions that we've shattered the interconnection. So now if I introduce a soldier to a resiliency program, they kind of don't revisit resiliency programs until the next resiliency program comes up. But if I teach them about military stoicism, then he gets hyper interested in Marcus Aurelius or military techniques. And then he's seeing connections everywhere. And I really don't have to prompt him or her to re-engage with resiliency training because when they study whatever about the laws of war, they're again studying back about resiliency. So uh, that's what I'd really like to see. So I was able to pull together, I think, I think it was maybe 10 um, different international speakers that came from um, everywhere from the British military to the U.S. Marines, um, uh, Army National Guard. Uh, a lot of civilian scholars to kind of talk about military stoicism and how uh, we could possibly bring back stoicism um, to the military or more knowledge of it. And I was lucky enough that Donald Robinson actually pointed me to Megan and said, hey, do you know about her? And I said, no, I don't. And that's kind of what kicked off our, our whole relationship. Yeah, that's where it started. And I think was that in 2020 or 2021? I can't, I, my years are going by too quickly. Yeah, it was like right at the lockdown of COVID. Of it was COVID. like one yeah, month I think into it was COVID. In 2020. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think Franklin is, I think it's fair to say, hey, like we've had a meeting of the minds, we've had a meeting of the heart. Um, you've certainly had a meeting of spirit and passion with the team we have here at both Wayfound and, and on the boss team. And um, we're up to all sorts of, wild and wondrous things together at this juncture. Yes, very much so. shenanigans. Yeah. 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 Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, Ryan and I both um, would love to benefit from anything and everything you would have to teach us and our audience about stoicism because, you know, certainly there does seem to be um, a lot of interest and a lot of use of the terminology in the public discourse and even we're seeing increasingly in public safety and even in the Canadian military. My sense would be 90% of the time people have a very high level understanding of what we're talking about. Um, and, you know, I think we certainly think within the before operational stress world, I think at least that, um, if we can agree or if we can come to understand or accept that adversity and trauma, particularly in certain occupations, is going to be part and parcel of what the job or what the experience brings, I think we need to have a philosophy or a code about how we approach and engage with adversity and trauma. And that's where a lot of my interest in stoicism comes from. Anything you want to add, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, I kind of stumbled into the stoic philosophy piece um, probably about four or five years ago. And, you know, I'd heard this rumblings in the background about stoicism and the core values around stoicism and how it, you know, was misappropriated or misinterpreted, I guess, in our in our modern society. And, and being a frontline practitioner, you know, I, I kind of jumped in the deep end of the pool with the stoic piece. And, 
you know, I know your background as well as is in the medical field as an EMT as well. So there's this idea that started to kind of, you know, percolate in my consciousness, you know, going through Ryan Holiday's work, obviously, you know, he's one of the larger ones that's out in the, in the um, social media realm, but then getting into the meditations with Marcus Aurelius and, then all of a sudden it opened up some more doors about how we can apply that, or at least how I could apply that in the work and the roles that I was fulfilling in my organization. So, you know, I think the greater conversation as I move into it a little bit more is just a better understanding of how we can actually, you know, work through some really difficult experiences, you know, with a good grounded foundation in, in mental health literacy, but also from the ancient wisdom that's already been there before us. So, you know, when you and I had a chance to meet, I was, it was interesting when we went on a rock walk there, when you were here in June, you know, the conversations were just synergistic. They were just, you know, it, it's just really validating, I think. So, you know, for me, I guess the question that I've always come up with is there's so many Stoic philosophers over, you know, hundreds of years. My question, I guess, is where do you start? If you know, our leaders are sitting there going, because I just kind of waded into it with really no direction. It was like a compass spinning around and around. And, you know, I, I think for many listeners, it's this idea. Well, I've heard about stoicism. Uh, we've defined that it's kind of misapplied. Um, so where would our listeners kind of go to? How do you get started in kind of the understanding of philosophies like background? So, yeah, that's a difficult question because uh Obviously, Stoicism itself, ancient Stoicism, runs for about a period of 500 years. So when we use the term Stoicism, we're really capturing kind of just the main themes because you get a, a lot of variance from the, the founder of Stoicism to kind of the end of the Roman period of Stoicism. And then even that, if you track the philosophy, you have Neo-Stoicism that changes things. Um, further, I would argue that the, some of the American transcendentalists changed it further, and then we have kind of the, the modern era, um, or late modern era, I should say, with the modern Stoics, um, and some of that material also has kind of just our current age ideological bias or um, influence that um, where you start on Stoicism and trying to get an accurate picture of it is is to some degree what you're trying to get out of. Um, if you're just brand new trying to pick up Stoicism, I have no idea what it is. Um, the book I recommend for soldiers is How to Think Like a Roman Emperor um, mm -hmm. by Donald Robinson. I think it's a it's kind of a, a great piece to read along with Marcus Aurelius's meditations. And basically what Donald Robinson does is it breaks down kind of in modern language, kind of the philosophy. And then he explains more of the background of, hey, it's especially interesting for military soldiers is, hey, Marcus Aurelius, emperor of the world, most powerful man that you could imagine of the day, like really king of the world uh, back in the day. Uh, he's at the very front lines of combat troops. He's fighting a war. He's dealing with a plague. He's got all these things, yet he's living a very simple life in poverty. He's really caring. He's really harsh on himself, generous with others. Um, really kind of like the role model of all Stoics. And uh, I think that's a really great intro book to read. So by the time you pick up the meditations, the actual original source material, you have enough background that um, when he's talking about his teachers or his mentors or relationships, you understand kind of more of the context that may be lost if you went kind of straight to the, to the resources. Now, um, 
I can say from kind of my own personal bias, I, I really love uh, Emerson, the American transcendentalist. Um, very much influenced by neo-stoicism, so you have more of a Christian aspect to it. But his his work, Self-Reliance, he quotes Marcus Aurelius several times in that work, but he always uses Roman name Antonius. So a lot of people don't make the, the direct connection. But um, I like kind of Marcus or uh, Emerson's work because at least for me, it was it's not the latest and greatest of English languages because it's been a couple hundred years. But I think that's uh, kind of a lot more accessible um, in terms of understanding it more in the modern world and modern context. But uh, yeah, so if short answer is Donald Robinson's How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, check out Emerson's uh, Self-Reliance and then uh, from there start kind of reading the primary sources. So Marcus Aurelius Meditations, Epictetus, Seneca, um, those would be kind of the great pathway in. Um, and kind of once you've explored kind of the more ancient texts, then, then I would say you could read some of the more modern texts um, like Holiday and the other authors. And if you kind of spend some time with the actual original primary text, you'll notice that there's been some shifts um, and kind of ideas and concepts with our, our modern authors or how it's presented. Well, and I think Franklin, you know that like, especially in the before operational stress program, <clears throat> um, I, and I think we have found it initially interesting and continue find it interesting to try to find a little bit of the intersection between um, psychological concepts and stoicism and how that can be helpful for, you know, people who are working on the front line or in the field of battle, et cetera. Um, and so why do you think it's important for your average soldier or maybe, you know, police officer or what have you? Why do you think it's important for people maybe to understand what the Stoic philosophy is about? Um, so I think it Stoicism. Well, I also take one step back. I think everybody needs a philosophy. And if we to ask the question, what is a philosophy? It's a, it's a system that simplifies this very complex world into a way that we can understand things. Now, um, interestingly enough, kind of in the late 19th century, kind of through our modern era, we've had philosophies that should be claimed as anti-philosophies. So our modern philosophers really say, life's too complex for you to decide it by yourself. You need an expert to tell you what, how to interpret things. And that's really, really impossible to deal with a world that basically you always have to default to some expert to give you advice on what to do. So I really believe that every soldier, because every soldier needs to be self-reliable, self-functional on a battlefield, has to eventually frame a frame a worldview that says, I can take kind of the information I'm receiving, I can put it in the context, and then I can find meaning in it, and then I can take action in the world without having to seek some type of external validation on my own beliefs. Um, and I think that's a critical aspect to soldiers and really for emergency workers in general, right? So, you know, a paramedic or a police officer or firefighter doesn't have the time to stop and consult an expert about whatever environment they're in. They just have to respond to it. And uh, I really think stoicism, and you, we could slice off some of the evolutions of stoicism. I think evolution or stoicism I think is, I would argue, is the best philosophy, mainly because it, it, if you trace it back far enough, you realize it starts kind of in the ancient world. Um, although it was founded by Zeno Sidium, 
um, he finds it by finding a, a book by Xenophon about Socrates. And uh, Socrates was a soldier um, that was kind of decorated for heroism. He really loved the Spartan culture. He, hang out, he hung out in which the gymnasium. So um, the gymnasium is like an area is kind of like a grove of trees where men would go to work out and discuss philosophy. So it was like a mind-body development. But that philosophy started by assuming everything that had been proven to be effective on the battlefield, all the practices that had been naturally discovered to allow people to survive in the most extreme combat. And then as that philosophy evolved, it continued either reinforce or absorb kind of what the natural lessons learned of human psychology was, um, just survival techniques and functional survival techniques. And for 2000 years, that philosophy has become more and more developed by proving, reproving, finding, rediscovering the exact same thing over and over and over again uh, until what we have now today, which um, I think to some degree in the ancient world, um, stoicism was a lot easier to understand. So if I took you back to the Greek and Roman world, uh, and I said, well, you have to embrace your fate. Or, you know, we have a pantheon of gods, like maybe, whatever, maybe you offended Athena. So your life is going to be miserable because you offended the gods. So you would have to just understand like, hey, my life is miserable because I made a mistake somewhere and I can't be like John or Joe or some other person. Like I couldn't ever expect to have an equal life. And I think that kind of in our modern context, as we kind of, went through the monotheistic religion or kind of just our modern worldview, we think now, or a lot of people think now like, oh, I should have everything my neighbor has. My life should be like everyone else. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it's a lot more complicated now to account for like, like stop comparing yourself to everyone else, kind of focus internally, work on kind of improving yourself. Don't worry about telling the world that you're improving yourself. Just focus on virtue. Virtue is its own reward. You don't have to advertise that you're trying to be virtuous. Just, you know. Which is oh. so incompatible with yeah. our with our modern world and social yeah. media and right. And <clears throat> I find it to be so interesting in the sense that, you know, we we really have a very good understanding that the, you know, the perceived reality or the reality that people try to portray in social media and whatever in our in our modern age, like it actually worsens people's mental health and their outlook, right? Well, yeah, and it's definitely reinforcing our academic environment true or true you know, like the concept of a safe space or they've even done like huge medical studies where like you take a group of ceos you divide them in half and you tell half the ceos that the more stress they encounter like the worse health they'll get and then you tell the other half like stress has no impact on your health and it's completely normal to live high stress and you'll do a longevity study and the people that you've told that stress is bad for them die earlier than the people that you say, hey, stress isn't bad for you. So a lot of that is like, how are you interpreting the world? And can you take a challenge and say, this challenge is my opportunity to improve myself? Or do you take a challenge and say, oh, I should be protected. I should run away from this. This shouldn't happen to me. So a lot of it's, well, really personal responsibility, which is mm -hmm. lacking mm -hmm. in our culture. Right. And I think even just like starting from the perspective of you're not actually owed anything. Correct. Yeah. 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 You know, one thing I found as I went through some of the texts and some of the pieces that I read over the years is, you know, there's there's a lot of text. There's a lot of things to, 
you know, unpack. And I appreciate the modern interpretation of the book that you said in the beginning, because I think that lays the context to what the ancient Stoics really kind of were meaning. Um, and I think <clears throat> what I struggled with is, is how they apply the virtues, given the language of the ancient Greeks, um, if, you, if you catch what I mean, we have a discussion on our walk about the same thing, because I think when we look at virtues or we look at um, that, what does it mean? You know, what does that mean for an individual to live the virtues in a stoic philosophy? Because, I mean, I can pull out, you know, lines of text. One of my favorite quotes from Seneca is wherever there's a human being, there's an opportunity for kindness. Correct. Yeah. Right. But I'm pretty sure that text was modernized. Yes. So, well, what, yeah. So I guess the question might be is, you know, how do we live the virtues with the original language of Greek and yeah. the modern interpretation? And what's the difference or is there a difference maybe um, from what was originally written versus what is now? Yeah. See, that's a very interesting question, especially the way you framed it. So <laughs> if you if you talk to modern Stoics, right, yeah. Stoics they would say whatever stoics always follow virtue so uh, i would say the vast majority of what you would now classify as like the modern stoic chair or nonprofit would probably be anti-war and very much pacifist yeah and they would use references to the ancient stoics to try to justify that opinion but if you actually look back at the ancient stoics you'd realize like some of the best and like most ruthless warriors of history have been stoics so it's it's like well this concept isn't exactly compatible. So we have to understand that the Greeks and Romans were very much kind of more tribalistic and more um, polis based. And kind of what we think of the laws of war developed later on in history. So like Scipio Africanus, which I, I'm surprised that we don't teach classes about him like everywhere in the military because he was a general that could array his army differently every time he went into battle. And he was more strategically and tactically effective than even Napoleon, like a pure genius. Like no one ever could figure out what this guy was going to do on the battlefield. But he, he ran into a situation where basically the, a village was colluding with the enemy. He basically liberates and takes back over this village. And he says, Hey, you have to swear an oath, the, the ally with Rome, okay, they, they take this oath, they go away, they come back, this village ends up re-allying with the enemy, so when they come back, they're like, okay, that's it, like, the whole village gets destroyed, and it's, at the time, wouldn't have been against the construct of virtue, because, you know, there was the expectation of honor and um, obeying your allegiances, so today, we'd be like, oh, that was a complete massacre, where in context, the Stoics would have been like, no, you know, there was a set virtue that they were supposed to follow. They failed to follow that virtue. We can't trust them. You know, there's no way that we can exercise virtue around them again. So we have to destroy them. Um, so getting back to your question, like how do we follow the virtues? Um, I think it, to some degree it's adapted over time. Now you can take a look at, um, the kind of the cardinal virtues is like wisdom. Like, can you tell the difference between good and evil? Which I think most people, uh, we could, 
God, now I can't try to think of what philosopher that said. It's like almost everyone can tell what's good and evil. The only thing that we ever debate about is how much evil should we allow in the society? That's really the debate because almost everyone can say, oh, this doesn't harm other people or this harms other people. Um, temperance, you know, are you picking kind of the middle path? Or are you not going to any of the extremes? Um, courage, you know, are you acting out when you should be acting out? Are you standing up for kind of your own beliefs? Um, you know, are you standing there to defend um, your polis if you're called to do so? And uh, now I'm going to blank on what the last virtue was. Oh, justice. Uh, got him out of order. Uh, which, <laughs> uh, interesting enough, like you look at the ancient world, it's very difficult to, to look back through history and not kind of get what's called presentism. So you judge the past by the modern techniques. So the, the Stoics were very much concerned with in terms of justice or doing right by people. And uh, some people argue, or at least some kind of modern philosophers, straw man Stoicism and say, oh, Stoicism would tell a slave, hey, accept your fate. Therefore, you should just be a slave. We're really in context if you looked at Stoics they would be like, no, slavery itself was kind of an evil. They didn't endorse it. Um, and one of the big criticisms against Marcus Aurelius is like, well, why don't you end slavery? And uh, I, I don't think people understand, like the Roman economy was like three times more dependent on slaves than like even the mm -hmm. Southern states during the American Civil War. So like the idea that you could end slavery would basically collapse the Roman Empire and the fact that whatever Romans are really good at assassinating their Caesars that don't yeah. don't you know do the right thing according to them. So like could could Marcus Aurelius have like ever really ended slavery? Was that within his like functional power to ever come to life? It'd be pretty hard to argue that it could have could he have done more to kind of reduce that kind of concept, maybe. Um but it's kind of an interesting historical kind of tidbit that, I don't know, it's the easiest swipe against stoicism I think I see out there. Well, I think but there's I think a, we... sorry, Megan, I just want to follow up really quickly, because I think how do we as public safety or healthcare or people in, you know, high risk occupations, when we're butting up against organizational stressors and we're butting up against the cumulative stress that we've seen over COVID or over the span of our careers, you know, when we talk about the virtues and the stoicism and, you know, the modern language around that, how does that apply or how does that integrate within, you know, the personal ethos of, say, a police officer or a firefighter? When we look at, you know, training is inherent, it takes over. Um, we have to build mm -hmm. self awareness. The four operational stress program talks about that self awareness piece and how we actually build that. Like, I guess the you know, I, it's really not a question, but more of an exploration about, you know, if I want to explore stoicism and I'm a frontline practitioner with all of the other competing priorities of stressors in my career, how is that, how is it helpful? Like, how do we move through that space? Well, I think that, so to be completely honest with the audience, I think we have to begin with the fact that, that we get we now know through science that we are biological machines so we have you know whether it's blood sugar in the body or oxygenization there's a certain tolerance for how many calories per hour that we can burn and still have cognitive thought so the idea that 
in every situation that we could put a soldier, a firefighter, a paramedic, or a police officer in that they would always be able to act virtuously is probably, it's not probably false. It is false. Like mm -hmm. we will put people in situations where they'll override their, their actual capacity to ever engage in philosophy. Like they won't be thinking, they will just simply be responding. And, uh, I think some of that is also having compassion for ourselves, acknowledge like the faults of human memory or just the biological nature that we have. Like, um, there's a huge amounts of faults in memory. Um, and I think anyone that's been through like truly traumatic situations will understand that. So if you get introduced to information after the fact of having like a critical incident, your mind can reincorporate that new information back into your memories, which will make them like catastrophically bad. Like I remember some experience that happened to me in deployment, like my memory is false. And I know that my memory is false about it. But like every time I think about that memory, like I have kind of such amount of shame because I think that I had the knowledge and I think that I had a choice. But if if you could actually record what happened to me at the time, like that was not known to me. I couldn't have acted upon it. But yet looking back, I think I had a choice. and I think I did wrong. Um, so I think any any talk about engaging in virtues first has to acknowledge that there is a threshold where we're going to push people that no amount of resiliency training is going to help yeah. because just the physical limits of the human body. And I want to jump in there on that because I think that's such an important point as I think we talk about this and we talk about um, public safety and military members, you know, biology is always going to win. And I think we could argue that, well, I don't think we can argue, I know we can argue that, you know, thinking and behaving virtuously, that requires some higher order cognitive processes to kick into gear. And those are just simply not going to necessarily be available if biology kicks in and decides that what you need to do is survive, right? And I really appreciate that point, frankly, because I think sometimes, well, what I've seen at least over the years is that people, much like you just said, it's like you you kind of understand what's happened after the fact, but you're still judging yourself according to something that's really unfair. So if they, I just I wanted to just sort of underscore that. Yeah. So I would say at least the military and kind of I would hope to think that the fire and EMS and police forces define themselves as a profession. So if you know the difference between a job and a profession is a profession is self-policing. So it has standards, it has qualifications, and that the members inside that profession will actually correct the behaviors of those around them. So when we talk about virtue, I think a lot of it is, you know, maybe you have that bad boss and that's the courage to stand up or even the courage of whatever risk being fired, because I think everyone would agree after the fact, it is far better to avoid moral injury and say the things that need to be said instead of being that passive person in the background knowing that things are wrong not speaking up and uh well just whatever extreme environment that emergency responders or military members can find themselves in is you know obviously people perceive information differently so like speaking up or having the courage to speak up might change the whole course of action because whatever Leaders may not be aware of other information. They may not under, fully understand the, the the context. And, you know, it's also have the courage of, you know, standing up, saying, speaking your mind and understanding that you might be the wrong that, or person that doesn't understand the concept that's missing key, key pieces of information and, you know, saying your piece and then reintegrating back into the team and doing your duty.
and I think, you know, an important note there is that, you know, behaving virtuously is not necessarily synonymous with just finding blame, right? You know, Correct, like if yeah. you're, you know, because I, I, I do think about leaders and, and the organizational environment and, you know, most leaders that I've met are driven by a desire to do well and they're well-intentioned. And yet, you know, there's any number of things that can happen that um, perhaps get in the way of, the right decision being made, you know, and I, I think that's one of the things too. I, there's so many parts of Stoke philosophy that I like, but one of them really is this emphasis on self-responsibility, you know, like find your, um, find your agency within the problem that's happening. Well, I, I think there's a, I got very badly paraphrased Marcus Aurelius, but like one of the things for a leader is like really admitting your own faults, or I think Marcus Aurelius said is like, if you are put in a place where like you have to discipline a soldier or whatever emergency responder for doing something incorrect, the first thing you should do is think about all the times that you made the same mistake in your life. So it's like find the fault that you want to correct in other people and yourself. And then that will help guide you in terms of making the correction. Like were you yeah. young and stupid ones? And it kind of goes back with stoicism in general, like understand that a lot of people are going to make some mistakes in their life because they're human. So you should be more forgiving with the people you interact with than yourself because you have control of yourself and you have no control over anyone else, regardless of what we say. But you see, like, okay, so riddle me this. I I, I find this so fascinating. And I think this is one of these um maybe paradoxical moments about how how and why I find stoicism so appealing. Because stoicism actually, when you look at it, is a very compassionate okay. philosophy. And yet, you know, you think about when Ryan was mentioning the notion of it being misapplied in contemporary context, you know, the language that we use, that's so counter to how people use the term stoic in today's society. Well, yeah, so well, well yeah, but now I can quote <laughs> Tolkien, right? Everyone should be a philologist, which is yeah. like everyone should study language. So if you take a look at stoic, cynic, and epicurean, all three are formal philosophies and we use those three terms contemporarily in ways that are the exact opposite of the actual philosophies that we're referencing. So I like the term pseudo-stoicism, which to get into that is there was a really, I think it was called the cult of sensibility. There was a really interesting occurrence that happened in the Victorian era and it started in England where especially in men, the classes of men were divided. So if you were a poet and an author, you were allowed to be essentially a crybaby. You could lay out all the emotions in the world and no one would ever judge you. But if you were outside what you classically call like the artitsy type of um, professions, you were expected to show no emotion. So if you were a carpenter or a workman or a soldier, you were expected to have the stiff upper lip and that's what we call now or have been come to be termed as stoic little as stoic or probably the best term for it is pseudo stoicism and if every time we saw it in society and we corrected people and said that's not stoicism that's pseudo stoicism pseudo stoicism i think we could eventually get it to stick where we could make a very sharp distinction um, other scholars, like I think um, Donald Robinson uses the small s stoic versus the large s stoic. I just think that it gets a little wordy and, and uh, well, even, 
even making material on stoicism, it's so, so hard at times to talk about stoicism and not use the same word and two different meanings. And if yeah. you have a brand new audience, trying to get them not to misunderstand the context is massive. Yeah. So, um, Ryan, I don't know if you know this or not, but Franklin and I just wrote a paper together that's out for a peer review right now. And I, I just noticed that, Franklin, like as you were, you know, in the section that where you were talking about stoicism, it's like you could have the word stoicism three or four times in a given sentence. And so it's no wonder that people get confused and, and what have you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And people tend not to be. People tend not to be hyper focused on precise language, which is unfortunate. So, yeah. And, yeah. I appreciate the term pseudo stoicism. I've started, I've replaced that because I was doing big S, small S, and frankly, just ended up confusing myself. So, pseudo stoicism actually really fits for me because mm -hmm. I think it actually is more um, specific about what we're actually naming, you know? And so, can you just say a little bit more? Like, do you know why in the Victorian age that decision was made to sort of divide the classes of men? Yeah, I, I'm going to have to go and do more research. So, okay. So, <laughs> this is real. If you really want to jump into philosophy, philosophy like breaks at the it kind of the Victorian era. So you have Hegel that comes out and basically says you can't confirm anything you see or experience in the world. And really, when Hegel says that, he breaks all of philosophy. So if you base anything off of Hegel, you're basically jumping into nihilism because anything Hegel says can be disproved disproven by Hegel. So it's it's like you've just taken systems to understand the world and you've broken everything. You've taken all meaning out of everything. You basically allow people to run around and say, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't prove I'm not in the matrix. So maybe I'm just the only person so I can be, I can do whatever I want because I'm not really harming people. I'm just, I'm the only person in the matrix. You can't prove that I'm not the only person in the matrix. And, uh, and you get a whole series of philosophers that build right on top of Hegel, and they're, they, it's really anti-philosophers, really, at that point. So from Hegel, you get Marx, and, and uh, you get a disassembling of kind of logic and reason. And I think it was kind of contemporary to that movement where you see, you see the breaking of classical systems that we used to rely on. So, and maybe this is important to highlight. So. Like everyone, if you went back to the Roman Empire and said, oh, Roman soldiers are Stoics, probably most of the Roman soldiers weren't. The officer corps were all, probably would have been most likely Stoics, heavily involved in, in the philosophy. But a lot of the foot soldiers uh, actually believed in religion, and that was kind of how they would get over their fear of the battle. Um, so religion and philosophy have kind of shared the same space um, in terms of what they do for humanity. And then it's actually the rise of the Christianity inside the Roman Empire is really what killed off Stoicism because Stoicism is a very hard philosophy to apply, and but it relieved all your fear of death because it just focused you on here and now. You what you see is what you get. Don't worry about what what's going to happen next. Just focus on the now. Um, but if you're Christian, hey, if you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven. Well, that's a lot easier to deal with. That's way better. So, yeah. so mm -hmm. Stoicism kind of disappears with the rise of Christianity. And uh, and then Stoicism and Christianity get married into what's called Neo-Stoicism uh, by a guy named Justice Lipsius. He rediscovers Seneca and basically goes through Seneca and the Roman uh, historian Tacitus and basically um, adapts the things that 
inside the Stoic philosophy that conflict with Christianity and change them so that they would agree with Christian hmm. theology and that that evolves and it it's quite amazing because you get all the natural rights of Stoicism that that actually lays the footprint of the Enlightenment. So without neo-Stoicism, like John Locke wouldn't have the idea of natural rights. The American Constitution wouldn't be funded. Like modern republics wouldn't exist without Stoic philosophy being kind of combined with Christianity. But I think by the time you hit Hegel and Marx, they're they're trying to reject all these kind of moral systems of the past. So you have the sharp break to kind of want to discard um, religion. So no more theology, and then they basically break philosophy. So no more philosophy, and then you're stuck with an individual that is truly scared in the world that they don't understand because no one really can understand the world. It's way too complex. And none of the traditional framing networks are in vogue or acceptable. So they have to kind of reject the past and develop some type of new thing. Mm -hmm. So instead of having like a functional theology or functional philosophy that dealt with emotion that said like, whatever, George Washington can break down crying and whatever, yeah. whatever Eisenhower can cry. Like no one cares if the yeah. generals cry. Um, we get this thing where it's like, we have to not cry and we have to suppress everything. And if we're feeling bad, it's because there's some internal fault in our own and it's all our fault that we feel terrible. And then we get all the toxic behavior. Right. And then we call ourselves stoic. Right. And then, and then we, and we, and we pair our masculinity and our competency with our capacity to do that. And, you know, I've been reading a lot of what you've sent me and, and hunting for this. And, you know, I can't remember, maybe you will have the reference at the top of your mind because you have all of these at the top of your mind, (laughs) but I was reading something in some of something that you sent me and it was like, you know, in, and it might've been the Knights of the Round Table. Anyways, where like after a battle, warriors would come together and they would cry and they would shake and they would hug and they would support one another. And and in fact, if you didn't do that, that was actually like a sign that maybe you hadn't engaged enough in the battle that just occurred. Like so there was actual honor and importance in those emotional displays. And yeah, like George Washington, Eisenhower, like so again, it's like somewhere along the way and, and it feels like it was even before Eisenhower, certainly. It's like we we screwed that up somehow. And, well, and it's really interesting because you you have this. So you have the pseudo stoicism takes over in the 19th century, and then because of that, we think the classics are pseudo stoic. So what you're referencing is actually King Arthur, King Arthurian Arthur, yeah, myth. Okay. So yeah. like two brothers that go into this major battle after the battle is done, they are so phenomenally happy that both of them survive. So they're hugging each other and weeping, and this is collected as like one of the tales, but that's like the ultimate paradigm of what it means to be masculine is to be a knight of the round table. So like, it's like, every time someone says like, oh, like whatever, historical men didn't cry. It's like, yeah, I read history. It's like, well, probably the best example of crying in the Stoics is uh, Cato the Younger. So he was a Roman senator that actually fought against Julius Caesar um, when Caesar basically was overthrowing the Roman Republic and starting the Roman empire. And it was a huge civil war. And there's accounts that every time that someone would bring him like accounts of the dead that he would break down weeping. So if they would walk in and say like, oh, we killed 40 of Caesar's men, he would openly cry. And people would ask like, why are you crying? They're the enemy. And he would say the Roman citizens, like we are killing our own people. 
-hmm. So here we have like one of the greatest military leaders, Stoics in history, like weeping every time he hears about people dying on the battlefield. And like no one ever thinks about that among our kind of current military leaders or like what would we expect if we saw that now? Like, So when you came up in June, I found it absolutely fascinating. The amount of books that you referenced that were modern iterations, Robinson Crusoe. Um, you know, J.R. Tolkien's work, um, like it blew me away because those are some of my favorite books growing up. And then the context that they're actually, you know, they're actually framed in this idea of, of old stoic, true stoic virtues, right? You know, we, we cultivated that book list when we were chatting back and forth on email about some of the other, uh, other ones that you referenced, but the modern classics that I, I, I just couldn't get over. Um, how, how did you find them? Like, how did you like get to really understand that they actually started to, you know, show those stoic virtues? Well, oh man, no, I'm going to feel terrible. <laughs> I did a great interview with a, a really great stoic Tolkien scholar. Oh my God. Now I'm going to feel terrible by myself. It's on my YouTube channel. Uh, <laughs> About Tolkien. God, oh, no, I'm not going to remember the name. Really great guy. <laughs> yeah. And in that conversation about Tolkien, he referenced Virgil. Mm -hmm. And Virgil is um, an actually Roman poet, a poem. Um, Aeneas is the poem, or Aeneid. Aeneas is the main character. Uh, he is the leader of the Trojans fleeing Troy at the end of the Trojan War because they've been defeated and yeah. they're searching for a new homeland that shows kind of the the search to found Rome. So it, it, it became the archetypal story of like what it meant to be a Roman citizen. And Aeneid is a demigod. So he's half human, half um, God. And he goes on a whole series of adventures, one of which he goes into the underworld and his under in the underworld, he meets his father, which had been killed at Troy. And his father tells him like, Hey, don't, don't kill the King that you're trying to conquer a land. And then when he comes back to the world and he ends up fighting the king, he sees the king wearing uh, essentially the armor of a friend. So he gets overwhelmed with rage and he kills the king and he ends up founding Rome. And kind of the moral of that story was like Aeneas was like the ultimate stoic archetype, but it explained that even the best stoics were still human and could act unstoic. And that just like shocked me. And I did a whole bunch more research into like that story. And then that jumped me forward into finding references to Crusoe. And then when I read Crusoe, it's like, oh, this makes entirely sense. Um, except when like Crusoe is referencing more towards kind of Christianity because it's a neo-Stoic um, um, archetypal story, but it's really this almost near the same story. Like, Crusoe becomes the archetypal story for neo-Stoics. So here's a man stranded on a desert island, absolute wicked sinner, like terrible guy. Go read the, the book. Terrible guy. Like the, <laughs> the, the guy was like a wayward son, like terrible stuff, gets shipwrecked all the time. He ends up getting shipwrecked on his way to Africa to, be, to gather slaves. Like he's a terrible guy. Like the first half of the story is made to make you realize like he is a terrible sinner. Gets stuck on a desert or a deserted island um, with, a, I shouldn't say deserted, cannibals come um, every once in a while to the island to eat people. And uh, 
he gets stuck there. He almost dies. He has this religious experience. And then he basically recenters his life towards God and kind of builds kind of his little kingdom for himself and goes on a series of adventures. But even Robinson Crusoe, you see a series of him being an excellent stoic and then he forgets it. And then his life crashes. And then he becomes an excellent stoic and then he forgets it and his life crashes. And I think those are such wonderful stories that we forget the stoicism is a process. It's not like a oh, I understand the philosophy, I can forget about it now. Like, and, and some of it's like, atone, I, I have a bias towards neo-stoicism just for the fact that you have atonement in it, more atonement in it. It's like, you're going to go out and then you're going to forget to act virtuously. So you're gonna have to forgive yourself and then you're gonna have to try to go set right in the world what you did wrong. And, you know, because of what we do, especially military or, or emergency responders, that may not be possible, but we're going to have to learn how to forgive ourselves or, you know, whatever. If you're a theist, ask God for forgiveness or repent of our our failures as good Stoics and then basically re- get re-engaged in the philosophy, go out there, refocus our lives on virtue, and then realize that sometime in the near future, we're going to be un-Stoic and we're going to have to repeat that process all over again. And I think That's we've lost that. Yeah, I think we lost that, but... Um, a really great recommendation for the the audience is Andrew, Andrew Weir's book, The Martian, also came out in movie form and starred Matt Dillon. Um, basically, it's Robinson Crusoe in space. The yeah. only difference is, is like Robinson Crusoe would appear uh, appeal to um, essentially God or reason, and then uh, the main character in The Martian appears to science, which if you think about it, science is just reason. Um, so excellent kind of intro way of a line. modern. Do you remember the opening line of that book? No, I do not. Not off the top of my head. I believe, I believe, and I may get it wrong, but it's along the lines of I'm fucked. I'm really. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Right. And as soon as I read that, cause I read the book, um, as soon as I read that, I was like, I'm all in. I got yeah, it. That's, that's it. That's it. Yeah, um, like well, and you know, I, what I love about that too, though, is that I also think that's the way that we conceptualize resiliency, right? Like, I think the the criticism we have of current approaches to training people to be resilient is it's very categorical, and it doesn't take in the the um, into account the fact that people are we're not static, we're we're fluid, and we're changing all the time. Yeah, which I think is the beautiful thing about stoicism, really, because like. I could push a soldier, really anyone, like I could push my wife and say, take this resiliency program. She could take it yeah. and it's sticky, right? So it sticks for a little bit and then it wears off. And like, there's not a lot of people that would sit through whatever a resiliency program and then whatever 18 months later say, oh, I'm going to need to sit back and read the exact same book again, where the beauty of stoicism is like what has survived and been refined through history are really masterpieces. So it's like, hey, read Marcus Aurelius and like whatever, six months from now, read Seneca, six months from now, read Epictetus, six months from now, Daniel Defoe, you know, you could keep walking through the classics and never really ever feel like, oh, I'm being lectured about resiliency. So you could keep engaging with all these great archetypal stories, these really great classic works of history and have something new to chew on that makes you really understand the world a lot better. That's all reinforcing the same concept. 
without being bored out of your mind. So. Right, right. And it's, and that's, that's it. I mean, it's so much about, um, I don't know, a guide to living perhaps without being so, you know, standard operating procedure focused like we tend to like in today's age. Um, okay, so gentlemen, we would be remiss if we didn't dive into just what the hell we're doing here in Bataan. So like. I was wondering how okay. you're going to Megan, because that was on my mind too. Like, how did <laughs> wait? How, how do we do this ruck thing? Well, so so Franklin's full stop. Like, you know, we're trading and we're in, and I'm I'm all in, and I have no doubt. Like, we will cross the finish line. We're going to get it done. But um, I'm I am I'm terrified. <laughs> or maybe not terrified, but like, there's a high level of anxiety about this thing. So, what are we doing in Bataan? What one of you maybe oh, Franklin? So why don't you? So I guess in March, we're heading down to the, the White Sands Missile Base in New Mexico to engage through the uh, Baton Memorial Death March, which is, I'm not sure if it's still the third hardest marathon in the United States, but at one time, whatever, a decade ago, it was rated the third hardest uh, marathon. So we're going to march, uh, whatever, about 13 and a half miles uphill, and then we'll enjoy the downhill march uh, across the finish line. It'll take us whatever. So wait a minute. Maybe, the, maybe the, nine the hours and we'll be done. <laughs> the hills at the beginning up right not down well so yeah it starts at like it's it's fairly flat for like the first three miles and then it goes uphill for like 10 and if you could do <laughs> if you could do straight uphill for 10 miles and then, then you can enjoy the rest of it and there's a little tiny hill at the bottom or at the end just to just to annoy you i don't think yeah, you're helping so megan out <laughs> no hey <laughs> we're getting fine. it done like it will get done but so franklin i don't know if you know this backstory or not you probably do but a year or so ago almost coming up well, yeah, maybe in February or something like that. Um, Ryan and I happened to both at the same time listen to a podcast you did. I can't remember whose, but you talked about rucking and and how rucking as part of your lifestyle is, you know, consistent with stoic practices, et cetera. And Ryan and I both independently were really inspired by what we heard from you. Um, I'm always inspired whenever I talk to you, including and up to today. Um, and we just sort of said, hey, we should we should try this rucking thing. Why don't we give it a go? And that has evolved into <laughs> into this. Yes. Yeah. And, and grateful for you being a guide in that process, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's I I remember walking down the hallway and knocking on Megan's door and saying, hey, I just listened to this podcast. Funny, I just did, too. You want to go do this thing called rucking? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I yeah, I still remember like the first time you said, "Hey, we're gonna go ruck for the goal, ruck forty miles." And all I could think of in the back of my head is like, maybe we start like whatever twenty. <laughs> like maybe you want to do like a marathon for forty. Okay, that's, that's a good ruck. Like you're gonna definitely encounter discomfort on a forty mile ruck. <laughs> okay, to- so let's tie it to like okay so we're doing this i mean I, I i'm sure we each have our own personal reasons but i mean i do think we share a perspective on why we think this is important so franklin how does how does rucking fit into stoicism oh that's a two-hour lecture in itself uh <laughs> so, well ultimately okay so the ability to move move carrying your equipment as a soldier critical importance so spartans famous right Going back to Socrates, Athenian hoplite carrying heavy equipment over long distances. Uh, Socrates was known for walking like significant difference or distances overnight to go visit a friend. Um, and you know, whatever. It was just something that the Stoics did was to get out, 
go into nature, spend a lot of time in nature, go walk long distances. And kind of throughout history, that's kind of been a repeating, really a repeating trend that all the great philosophers are just great walkers. Um, how I got into it was a, a American educational philosopher, Captain Alden Partridge, which became very famous uh, early 1800s in his ability to march. Um, he could march 70 miles in like 18 hours in a single day. Like there's a apophrical reference of like a stagecoach running into him on the trail and asking him if he needed a ride. And it's in the, he told the stagecoach driver, no. And then more than 40 miles down the road, which, you know, the stagecoach had to stop and trade, trade out horses, but the stagecoach driver pulled in to his final stop to see Captain Partridge sitting, eating his dinner as he walked through the door because he was just whatever, a phenomenal marcher. He inspired the creation of the Vermont Long Trail, which led to the creation of the Appalachian Trail. Uh, he did a whole bunch of other great things I'm writing a book on, and that's one of the reasons I haven't been as heavily rucking in the last six months as I should be, but that will soon be changing. But <laughs> better be. the purpose of, of of walking was to build constitution. So first of all, it's a great physical exercise. It's really the combination of cardio and weightlifting all in the same same exercise. And the purpose of extended ruck marches is to purposely be miserable. So can you walk until the <laughs> point where it becomes uncomfortable? And can you, without distraction, deal for a long period of time with yourself while you're uncomfortable? And that is something that modern at least modern American, probably modern world, uh, yeah. well, modern civilized world probably can't do. Like, can you like not have a cell phone and can you spend whatever 13 hours or whatever, eight hours in one day and go out and just take a walk and your feet will be sore, you'll be tired, your back will be sore, you'll be uncomfortable, you just want to stop. Yet, can you tell that little voice inside your head that it's just an annoyance and it's not really anything and by continually going out and kind of engaging in these these practices of being uncomfortable really super hypes your confidence because you know if I was the whatever walk into a meeting that's going to be an hour long and I know I'm going to be yelled at my boss it's like whatever I could go out and rock 60 miles in a day like I could I can be miserable for 13 hours straight like whatever one hour meeting is not going to upset me and uh by the constant like exposure to these kind of negative scenarios, you'll find yourself like becoming much more relaxed inside mm -hmm. um, adversity. Uh, I love it because you get hyper acclimatized to the environment. So you'll whatever find yourself not wearing a coat in the winter because you just gotten used to the cold or used to the heat. And mm -hmm. you can be in a lot more environments, be a lot comfortable in those environments. and. Uh, at least for a soldier, it's wonderful because, right, if if I need to take you outside, we need to go fight people. Like, if you're shivering and you're focused on how cold you are, then you're not going to be focused on the enemy. But if you've been, whatever, out rucking and you're used to being cold, then it it's something that you don't pay attention to. So you can actually focus on the things that will keep you alive. So that's at least the reasons why I go out and ruck. Yeah, yeah, no, I like it. I mean, it's interesting. I was just thinking as you said that, like, so Ryan and I went out a few weeks ago or a month ago or something and we ended up marching for 48 and a half kilometers and i can't remember what that translates to in miles it took us 10 and a half hours something mm -hmm. like that and 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 that was 
I don't know, we've done many of them. So that was just one in the chain of, of things we've been doing since we started this, this um, pursuant to your inspiration, Franklin. But that's <laughs> one of the things I've noticed is that like there is a confidence in this. It's like, well, you know, I feel that inside myself since we accomplished that 40 and a half. It's like, well, I did that. So, you know, I know like a, there's a different sense of, of, of what I actually believe I can do. Yeah, for me, it's the same thing, right? Like it was 10 and a half hours, but it didn't feel 10 and a half. There's a time distortion in that when you really embrace. And I can I can be honest for myself, the last hour, maybe an hour and a bit, that's when the, the little voice popped up. But for sure. you know, I, I just walked 48 kilometers in 10 and a half hours. And yeah, I'm sore. I've lost some toenails. My feet look like hamburger. <laughs> We're right? going to have to work on that. But I did. <laughs> I know we got to work on the feet thing, but we've got uh, our boots now, Franklin. We yeah. both have our boots. Yeah, but that—that's one thing I took away from that is the power and and the fact that yeah, if I can do that, then what else is there? Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's what I like about it. Yeah. Well, so in retrospect, like, I, there's so many things I wish I would have done as a young soldier. Like, I obviously can't fix now, but like when. I deployed to Iraq in 2009. We like walked like from Kuwait into Iraq. We got there and then there was a, it's called a stand two essentially. Like we were expecting attack from the enemy. So like um, big events were happening on our base. So no one was allowed to sleep. Like everyone had to be prepared to fight. So just walking in from the point where we stepped on an aircraft that got into Iraq until we could go to sleep was like 36 hours. So... Mm-hmm. I just, I wish I would have had the experience of like going out and saying, could I do a 50 or 60 mile road march? If I could do that, like if I could spend 20 hours like carrying heavy weight, the confidence I would have had walking into combat to stay awake for 36 hours would have been like so much higher than what it was. So I, I just remember how mentally draining it was because it just seemed like forever where I didn't have like a practice or a a previous experience where I could have said, oh, this was worse. This is, you know, I, I, I've already been tested. Like, this isn't something new to me. Like, I've done this before. Yeah. Well, so this winter, um, <clears throat> Ryan and I have, have set a bit of a training schedule. And so um, next Saturday, we're going to go out um, independently. I think we're doing some things. I'm going hiking and going to summit a peak out in Canmore, Alberta <laughs> uh, on the 28th of October. We just signed up for this Rock for Remembrance. And one of the things Ryan and I have agreed to, I think, is that, um, you know, when the snow flies, we're going to go out in March because yeah. that'll probably mimic a little bit of the terrain we'll find in, in Bataan. Yeah. So, yeah. So walking through, I want to say three inches of snow. Now I'm going to screw up the data. I think, yeah. So if you walk through like three plus inches of snow, you're at least doubling the calorie burn versus walking normally. It's insane. Like if you get like above a foot of snow, then you're like four times the amount of calorie burn just to walk. So you more first. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Which I guess up in your area, you'll have lots of practice in this winter. Yeah, starting. Well, we, we sort of think too, like trying to get out when it's freshly snowed, so it doesn't get too packed down, because you'll get, a, you know, obviously the looser terrain and all that. So, yeah. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. It'll be fun. Yeah. I don't. It, man, it's going to be like I didn't even think of a climate shift for you. So the, my previous years that I've done baton, I have lived in Nebraska. So when I went down to New Mexico in March, it was a significant shift. 
and climate. So I, I it, it's, it's going to be something that you're just going to have to grin and bear because it will feel like marching in the sauna, I think, for you. That's kind of what of we're thinking. Yeah, yeah. So but, yeah. I don't know if it's, it's if it's a true way or a, a fair way to look at it, but I'm kind of like, if we could get used to extreme cold, maybe we'll be prepared for extreme heat. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, well, I can say I'm personally biased. So like the longest march I've ever done was 62 miles. It took me just less than 18 hours. And that was like just right below, below freezing. And I, I could not imagine a temperature better than to try something like that. Like I've yeah. always been able to walk so much farther in freezing, near freezing temperatures than ever. If it's 50 or 60, then you're gonna burn out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, so like, I don't know, to tie it all back together. I just, I feel so deeply for the people that I see and I work with who are, so troubled by and understandably so by what's going on in the world and things that are happening um and then also are waiting for the world to change before they can feel better you know and yeah. there's something about that thought about you know focus on what you can control and have a philosophy have a code you know have some way that you try to make sense out of all of this like i i just i think that's helpful for people in this world that we live in you know yeah, I'll have to tie it back into the transcendentalists like the Emerson and Thoreau. I think that you could really, if you find yourself in a terrible environment, you just collapse your life back into your into yourself, basically, to focus on. So, you know, focus on just improving yourself, whatever your lot is. For better or worse, you accept the ground that you have to till and you just make the most of what you have. Like we waste so much energy trying to compare ourselves to others or thinking that we deserve something or we should have had something. It's like, well, like just spend time every day trying to improve your life. And it's amazing how much can be done over a very short period of time. If you just kind of stop all the excuses, stop all the comparisons and just kind of work just on yourself. And no matter where you find yourself, you'll, you'll end up being better for it. And then kind of the other big point is realizing that the harder your life is, the more opportunities you have to really excel. It's like the best thing you could ask for is like, whatever pressure polishes gems and hardships polishes men like the idea that you'd run away from a hardship is like probably the worst thing that you could do for yourself because it's just going to degrade who you are yeah wow uh what a way to close that out frankly <laughs> well that's Seneca. that's <laughs> well i mean but i think i think those words are, are important i mean you know we talk about different things within the boss program about optimal performance and really in some ways like I love pressure polishes gems, right? So I think I, I was adverse to those pressures for years in my career. And I'm just learning that, you know, like the oak tree and the sapling kind of metaphor, you know, it's you need the wind to keep the roots deep. Yeah. yeah. Right. If you're feeling comfortable in your life, you're in the wrong place. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's right. That's right. Wow. Franklin, we just appreciate you so much. Thank we you. appreciate you coming on this podcast. I, I'll speak for myself. I, I mean, I have just learned so much from you since I met you. You are a true source of inspiration for me. For me, you model, I think, what it means to try to live in a stoic way in this world. Um, and I just, I'm so, I'm just so grateful we met. Thank you, ma'am. And that's uh, the same for me, having met you and having the opportunity in June to go for a, you know, a, we'll call it a short 20 kilometer walk. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
but that that was really uh, an amazing opportunity to see and get to know you in a way that I don't think other people can. You need to go out and do it. You need to have that shared experience. So I do appreciate anything and everything you've done for, you know, what you're doing through the research in Alden Partridge and all the other pieces that you've shared. So thank you once again from, from me personally. It's been instrumental in helping me accept the fact I'm going down to do a march in the desert. <laughs> You're the one no casualties. Hashtag no casualties. Yeah. That's us. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate all your efforts, all the things that are Wayfound are doing. I cannot tell you how many how many people I've run into in my career that talked about some type of stoic program just to continually talk about developing it. So it's so wonderful to see that the boss program has done so well proving the fact that it can work. I'm so excited about the features of a military specific boss program. I think that once it hits the market, it's just going to explode and do so many wonderful things for so many people. Yeah, I mean, we're just getting started and and that includes you in a very, very big way. So thank you for your leadership and just thank you for being the human you are. Thank you, Franklin. Okay, bye you too.